This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope your week is off to a good start. Um, And today, we're thrilled to have one of our regular and most popular guests back on the show, Attorney Richard Courtney. Rick, uh, good morning. Uh, Good morning. good, Good to have you here. Would you please remind us about your background and your practice area? Well, I started practicing out of Ole Miss Law School back in 1978, a fairly general civil practice with my father and then with a small law firm. And my daughters were born in 1979. I have twin daughters. One has disabilities. So I began learning what I could about disability law and Medicaid and SSI. And we were able to navigate some of those programs. And I did book learning plus personal experience with that. And it has led me over the years to do elder law and estate planning, uh, which we'll talk about some today, you know, that everyone needs to have their ducks in a row, as they say, and plan your estate. But particular emphasis in elderly issues and in special needs issues for families that have a member with disabilities. So that's what we do in my firm. And uh, we, we love it. Well, you know, we're. We're hoping that marriage is based on uh, true love, and we're going to talk about when marriage makes a money difference today. But I mean, it's a contract, and and let's let, let's talk about the fact that you know uh, before we get to the impact of marriage on estate planning, let's talk about when when the marriage ends for a second. You and I were emailing about this prior to the show, and well, let, you know, me, um, let me interrupt you one. Sure. I can say last Wednesday was my forty eighth wedding anniversary, and I I still let Ruthie know. I said yes, I'm. This is my first wife, Ruthie, and so she stays nice to me. So <laughs> that's good. And uh, and you know and and if, if Donna, if, if if I will say this about Donna, if, if if I ever get divorced, it's my fault because <laughs> Donna's great. Exactly. So I'm lucky about that. But you know, but but you know, and we we've seen an increase in uh, and um, people who are cohabitating and not married. So we'll talk about some of the benefits of, of being married in terms of estate planning, but. What happens when people get divorced um, to things like life insurance and and uh, and retirement plans? In the old days, it used to be that, you know, the former spouse still got those unless the beneficiary designation was changed. So what, what happened in 2021 that changes that in Mississippi? Yeah, in Mississippi, legislature met a couple of years ago and uh, enacted what is generally called the Effect of Dissolution of Marriage Act. Uh, and it changed all those rules pretty significantly. It now says that when a person establishes a payable on death bank account or puts transfer on death to a spouse and later they divorce, well, the law now revokes that uh, designation of the spouse as the beneficiary. So there's an automatic recognition that, well, this is probably not what you intend anymore. 
um, unless the person who got the account goes back after the divorce and redesignates that spouse, or unless a court order like a divorce support order uh, is going to uh, continue to make that other spouse, the divorce spouse, as the beneficiary uh, for some reason. So that extends now to payable on death and transfer on death bank accounts and investment accounts. It also says that life insurance beneficiary, uh, if it's a spouse, if I name my spouse as beneficiary on a life insurance policy and we later divorce, the law revokes her as a beneficiary or him as a beneficiary unless I go back and redesignate that former spouse as a beneficiary or unless a court order says, no, I have to maintain life insurance benefits for that person as part of a support order going on, ongoing. So uh, that's a significant change. It does say that if the uh, alternative, alternate beneficiary, the secondary beneficiary, contingent beneficiary, whichever one term you want to use, if that person is who is going to get the money, if the insurance company pays that benefit out to the former spouse, they will be liable to pay it again to the alternate beneficiary unless uh, somebody has let them know uh, ahead of time that they uh, there's no right to do that. You know, that they've got to be notified in advance. Uh, and if they are notified and they still pay it out, then they're going to be liable to pay it again. Yeah. So, so it's an interesting change. I still think divorce lawyers ought to make sure uh, their clients change those designations anyway and not rely on that default statute. But at least that's a, a big change from when you and I were in law school, for sure. Oh, yeah. There are cases you you and I are familiar with the old cases where lost, uh, you know, a person, a, a husband had a life insurance policy designated the wife as the beneficiary. They got divorced. He remarries later on. He dies and the ex-wife gets the life insurance money and the new wife is not happy about that, but that's what the law said. You know, you got to change your beneficiaries now because of the law that's been here a couple of years now on the books. There's some protection against that. Uh, but I tell every client that we see in our office and I tell other lawyers I'm talking with always name alternate beneficiaries. And if there is a divorce or a death of a beneficiary, Always revisit your beneficiary designations on life insurance. That law also applies now to retirement plan distributions, not to a state public retirement system. It specifically exempts that, but it applies to other retirement benefits, to these payable on death accounts. So it is important for any client to know exact at all times, who are my beneficiaries and what's my relationship with them? And do I still want those beneficiaries in place as they are. Great. Well, now let's talk about, okay, people who make it to the finish line and they are surviving spouses. So what are some of the protections for a surviving spouse? We always talk about a will being the intent of the testator. Uh, but one of the intents, if I have the intent to completely disinherit my spouse, that's probably not going to work. So tell us a little bit about, for example, uh, what is um, personal, what, what is exempt property? For example, yeah, Mississippi has statutes that say what assets are exempt from creditors' claim. One that people have probably heard about if you own a home is homestead exemption. Well, there is a homestead exemption 
that says my creditors cannot force me out of my house to collect a judgment they may have against me because it's exempt from those creditors' claims up to certain limits. And so my, that's protection uh, for my assets against creditors. There are also other uh, exemptions like uh, $10,000 of any assets I want to select. For a person over 70, I think it is $50,000. I can designate assets of up to that amount, and they're considered exempt. I used to do collection work with my father in my early law practice, and we would have a judgment for an unpaid bank loan or credit card bill, and we'd go out to seize an automobile or seize some assets. I remember going over to the Lamar Theater downtown Jackson to seize some band equipment from somebody that had not paid a bank debt. And uh, they said, well, we're going we're gonna to claim this property as exempt. And knowing the exemption laws, we said, okay, we're leaving. We had to walk away from it. We couldn't seize that. So there are exemptions. And um, there are protections that exempt property at my death that I own will go to my spouse. Uh, there's a statute that says personal property is ex- that is exempt from by law from execution will vest in my widow or widower husband. So, or on operation of law, so my spouse would have some protection to keep some exempt assets and property in the home at my death, uh, which protects that from creditors. So that's one important thing to know as we're talking to folks about estate planning. We say, well, you want to leave everything to your children from your prior marriage. Well, you know, just know that this statute is there that says your your new spouse will get these exempt assets um, at your death. And so there's some protection there, but they say, okay, well, I didn't know that. I thought I could leave everything to my kids. And these laws do... Um, maybe interfere with their intent sometimes, but they're there to protect spouses and uh, provide resources for them. Um, There's one other one at death. Uh, The law says that my spouse at my death can claim one year's support based on our standard of living over a year, can provide a year's support from the estate, my estate, before anybody else gets anything from it. So that is a, a widow's allowance is what it's often called generally, you know, a widow's allowance or widower's allowance can claim a year's support. And I'm working on an estate that's closing right now. And uh, my client is going to get about $36,000, it looks like, as a widow's allowance for one year's support, in addition to the other assets that are coming through that estate to her. So, um those are important protections to prevent a divorce, I mean, a, a surviving spouse from being impoverished or being let out, left out of resources that they need to live. There's some, um, another one that uh, you mentioned leaving an insufficient amount or leaving my spouse out. And I alluded to uh, a second or third marriage person who says, I'm going to leave everything to my children. There is a law in Mississippi that says if I omit my spouse from my will or my disposition of assets at death, the law will automatically renounce my will and give my spouse 
a child's share of my estate. So if I own assets in my own name, and again, you have to know what's in my estate. It's assets that I own in my own name alone. And they're not going to someone by beneficiary designation or otherwise. But if I own assets in my own name and I leave my, and I leave everything to my children and I have two children, well, the law would say at my death, we're going to give your spouse, the surviving spouse, one third, a child's share, shared equally with those two children. And, you know, my children from prior marriage may not be happy that that spouse of mine is getting that, but uh, that's what the law says if I omit the spouse. If I leave my spouse something in my will, but it's not a full child's share, then the, the spouse will have to hire a lawyer and in the probate of my estate, they'll have to file a claim to get that child's share that they're entitled to, to get the full amount. And this comes into play in our elder law planning a good bit. When one spouse has um, become incapacitated, say through dementia or some other condition, and they can't manage assets, I will tell that other healthier spouse, can your, can your husband, for instance, can he manage assets if you're not around? Oh, no, he can't do that anymore. I said, well, it doesn't make sense to me personally or legally for someone who can't manage assets to own assets. They say, well, okay, I can understand that. I said, so let's get everything out of his name into your name, Ms. Jones. Now, you need to do a new will because we don't want him to inherit assets from you at your death, if you pass away first, that he can't manage. Plus, those assets would have to be spent down maybe before he could access Medicaid benefits. So let's get everything in her name. And then there's two options I present to that spouse then. You can leave everything at your death in your will to a trust for your for your husband's benefit and name your children as trustees to manage that uh, for him, take care of things he needs. And at his death, then the trust would be distributed to the children. So that's one option. But another option is in your will, leave him $500 or $1,000. She says, well, why leave him $1,000? I said, because you want to get a pass to that automatic renunciation. And he is not going to hire a lawyer if he's got dementia and now may be in an assisted living or nursing home. You know, He's got to hire a lawyer and go claim a child's share, and he's not going to do it. So leave him $1,000 and leave everything else to your children if you trust that they will take the money and use it to help him if he needs it. So those are planning options we have to consider that take into account these statutes about spousal protection and supports. So just know that, you know, if you want to leave your spouse out of a will totally, the law is going to come get a child's share uh, for that spouse if you pass away first. And unless there's an exception, unless that spouse that's surviving has what's called a separate estate that is equal to a child's share of yours. So if my, if my spouse has separate assets and money and accounts and property that would equal at what a third of my estate would be if I have two children, then she can't. Uh, challenge and renounce my will and take a child's share if she already has separate estate of that amount. So allocating property in a pre 
premarital agreement. Um, we have to understand how these laws work when we're doing premarital agreements between uh, spouses who are going to be spouses soon and want to say, well, here's how we're going to. We can say these laws don't apply in a premarital agreement and take these laws out of effect for that couple uh, if they contract that away. So we have done that when talking with clients about upcoming, you know, intended marriages. We talk about these rights of spouses at death and then, well, I don't really like that outcome. I don't want that. And so we can do a premarital agreement that says we acknowledge these laws are there. If if one spouse passes, the other one would have these rights, but we're giving those rights up. We understand What I love about our show is having Rick Courtney on is that he presents so much information that you may not have thought of, but then you think, oh, well, what about this? What about this? You know, this is my situation. How does this uh, affect me? So I love that we're able to give this wills and estate information. And I also love that folks can call in and get their own questions answered Hey, send us your questions to our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our whole show live, so if you've missed any of the program, you can listen to the podcast. Get it wherever you find your podcasts. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Uh, I love being able to go back to listen to shows. And we have absolutely loved having Rick Courtney on our shows to talk about estate planning and wills and estates. And that's where we've got a we've given him his own podcast section. I'll have a link to that on the information for this page. And we love giving information, but we also love answering questions. We've got quite a few calls, but uh, we're going to move right on to Jerry in Bay Springs. Jerry, thanks so much for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Yes, ma'am. Thank, uh, thank you all all for the show. My question has to do with my wife's blood-related uncle and his wife, his widow now. Uh, he was in his 80s. He died a few weeks ago. And uh, he had always said, told my wife that he would take care of her after he died. Now, he was not a rich man, but uh, we've tried to get in touch with them. They're in Kansas. Uh, tried to get in touch with his widow. And she has not returned any calls or messages on the Internet. And uh, it's it's getting weird that that she's not communicating with us, and we're just wondering if there's um, how do you how do you know if a will is being executed properly uh, so that all of the heirs are getting their fair share in case of something that my wife is is due, but she's being denied. I don't know if it would be hard assets like uh, cash or vehicle or if it would be an insurance policy. And since this is in Kansas, you may not be able to help me, but your insight on this would be uh, appreciated. Well, thank you, Jerry. This is Rick. And um, 
I had this same question in a similar kind of situation yesterday in our office and had to tell someone it's hard to know how to get a copy of a will if you don't know where it is. First of all, wills can be lost. Wills can be destroyed by someone who doesn't like what they say. If they find it, I could find my mom's will and I don't like it leaves my brother something I wanted. I could tear it up and say, oh, well, she must have never done a will. And if nobody knows or has copies of it, then it's hard to it's hard to do anything about that. Um, the spouse, you know, your her uncle's widow, you know, has some has some control over things, I suppose, if Kansas law is anything like Mississippi's that we're talking about, there are some spousal protections and rights maybe that she has, but I don't know how to tell you to find a copy of a will. If you know the attorney that he dealt with, sometimes family members have been able to call an attorney and say, you did legal work for my dad or my uncle in this case, um, did you do a will for him? Now, whether the lawyer will tell you, I don't know, because as Professor Gershon, he teaches ethics at the law school and can tell you, lawyers shouldn't be telling much. If, if I'm not, if you're not the client, if your wife is not, was not the client of that lawyer, they really can't tell her much, right? And Richard, do you have something that you can offer about how you find a will if it's, the only way you could probably find it is if, if it was actually submitted to probate and then you could, you know, check the probate records. But I agree. I mean, if, if the former, if the uh, widow doesn't want to share it and she's the only one that had access with it, to, it's hard to know what's going to happen. But, um, and it's why we want our clients to communicate about their estate plans with somebody, you know, that they trust who will, you know, take care of it, you know, What's where my safe deposit box is, where the key is, you know, what's in my will, you know, where to find all this stuff um, so that we don't have these issues. But, Jerry, I wish I wish we could help you, but I just don't, you know, unless it's been filed. I don't know how you find it. Yeah, and Jerry, you, you said that he told her he told your wife while he was living that he intended to take care of her or something to that effect. Well, that's what we're talking about today. As his estate planning lawyer, had I been in that position, I would have told him telling somebody something not good enough because people forget. Other people get in the way. You need to do those things in ways that are enforceable and can be, you know, implemented later by somebody who knows what your intent was. So I don't know what else to offer your wife in that situation. Um, well, if, if somebody knows in Mississippi, if somebody knows that someone possesses a will, they can, after I think 60 days after the person died, they can file a petition to compel production of the will in court. So that, I don't know if that helped, but it being in Kansas, you're right. I can't tell you anything about Kansas law. What about that uh, publication in a newspaper of uh, uh, notifying heirs? Well, that's part of the probate process generally that is notifying creditors that this person has died and they've got a certain length of time to file a claim against the estate to get paid or they won't ever get paid. So that means the will has been brought out, filed in court, and now they're publishing it uh, to go forward with a probate. Then you would be able to see what the will says and you would be able to make sure that the court enforces it properly. 
if you were a creditor. No, even beneficiaries of the will. Could, once the will is out in public as a, as a document that's been filed in court for probate, the court is to make sure not only that creditors get paid, but also that benefic- that the will's intent, intent and directions are carried out for the beneficiary so that things are distributed properly. Oh, okay. Okay. And can I All add right. maybe, you know, one thing to think about is it might be, this might be, I don't know when, when uh, the uncle died, but it could be that the widow at this point is just in a time of mourning. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times people don't want to deal with calls. and So I wouldn't necessarily take her in, you know, non-communication as, as anything sinister yet uh, that she's trying to keep, you know, any information from your wife. It could just be right now. It's just a tough time for her. It's been six weeks and uh, she's conducting some other business. Huh. Well, that's different. <laughs> Jerry, we appreciate you calling in. We hope that our experts have been of help. I do know that when they have put the advertisements for creditors, sometimes it's not in the most popular periodicals that might be be out there. And I, I haven't ever done this, but I've heard of people putting uh, like a Google alert on names that appear in in news articles or or something. I don't I don't know if that would help, but uh, that might be a, a possibility. But thank you, Jerry. We've got Shane and Mary to go next. Let's go to Shane in Biloxi. Shane, we're glad you've called into in legal terms. What's your comment or question? Hey guys, how y'all doing? Um, I've got uh, I've got a question about uh, life estates and how those operate in Mississippi. I have uh, uh, this isn't my direct family. I've married into the family. Uh, but, uh, my wife, her, uh, father, and then, uh, her father has two siblings. They are all set up as a trust for the property that it'll, it's property and uh, a house, uh, that will eventually go to them. It's currently under, uh, the, uh, woman that their grandfather married after his first marriage. And so it's a life estate under her name. Um, she's 98 and I believe lives somewhere in Alabama from what I've been able to tell. But the family wants to sell us the property now. And so they were talking about being able to uh, get a document that would work as an instrument where as soon as she dies, that the life estate, instead of going to the trust, would just go directly to us. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and see if that was uh, you know, actually a possibility also to find out if there is, uh, you know, during that process, if uh, some of her family, the the estranged, um, you know, uh, wife, if uh, her family wants to sue during that process, is that a possibility and could that complicate things? So, uh, Shana, thank you. Uh, I'm assuming that they're, the property is owned by a deed right now that has reserved a life estate to the grandfather or to the widow his widow, and then the remainder interest to a trust. Is that what I understood from? Yes, correct. uh, In order to change that direction of the remainder interest that would go to the trust, the, Mm -hmm. at the end of the life estate, all the owners of the property right now on the deed, the life estate owner and the remainder interest owner, the trustee would have to sign a new deed to change that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it could be done because 
you know, if all the owners of the property decide we want to change the ownership or how it's going to pass, they could do that. Mm-hmm. Now, whether someone who's outside that group of people, not the trustee, is not one of the beneficiaries of the trust, it's not the current life estate holder, if mm-hmm. somebody that wants to sue, yeah, they could try to sue. I learned in law, in law school up at Ole Miss, you can, anybody can sue anybody for anything, anytime. It's whether you can have a, can you prevail on a reasonable claim? So I don't know what the other family side interest would be or whether they would think that's some kind of wrong transfer, but it, it, it all depends on the deed ownership and whether all the properties that are all the uh, owners, co-owners that are on that deed uh, have signed off on what they want to do. And that's what I tell people when they say, well, I'm going to deed my house to my kids and keep a life estate. I said, you you know that if you want to sell your house or mortgage your house now, your children have to sign off on that deed or mortgage with you because they are now owners of a remainder interest. And, well, I'm not sure I'll do it then. I'm, Right, right, and yeah, I'm not sure that any of her, uh, any of her uh, offspring would would try and complicate that process. But it just seems uh, I wanted to see what my legal exposure would be in that process in you know kind of buying a home that they don't technically own yet. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, ownership, uh, the life estate, it gives the life estate owner some rights right now. The grandmother. And then uh, the remainder ownership is going to go to the person or the trust, in this case, that is named, but it would go outright to that person. Now, there could be other title problems from title issues that have been on the property from before, like uh, property line disputes or construction that wasn't paid for in a construction lien or tax lien, those sorts of things. You'd have to do a title search to determine the actual title of the property and how clean it is. But I believe that uh, all the parties on the deed could sign a deed to change the disposition of the remainder if they chose to. Shane, thank you so much for calling in with your question. And I'm so glad we've had our expert here to be able to address it. Email us your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. All the MPB Think Radio recordings can be found on the website mpbonline.org slash radio. We hope that you'll subscribe to In Legal Terms podcasts on your preferred podcasting platform, So the Social Security survivor benefits, those are paid to widows, widowers, and dependents of eligible workers. And this benefit is particularly important for young families with children. You can set up your own My Social Security account from the ssa.gov website and you can learn more on their survivors tab. We are talking today about marriage and estate planning with our guest, attorney Rick Courtney. Rick, there's only so many hours in the day and some people have uh, maybe follow on Twitter and know that you were going to be on our show. And so they've sent us an email ahead of time. And this is an email that says, I'm single 
with an only child who is very responsible. We have right of survivorship for each other on everything. So I'm guessing this is an adult child. My child is on deeds for farmland and oil royalties that we have in Oklahoma. Has my estate been handled correctly? Yes. No, that's not the answer. <laughs> it is. It depends. As a lawyer, you know, I can't tell someone, give an opinion that they are in the best place or that they've done successful planning without myself reviewing what they've done and, and why they did it. But when there's an only child, it does simplify things. In, in my experience and practice, you say who's very responsible. And I would say they're responsible until they aren't. Uh, we have seen adult children who seem very responsible, take a different track at some point, get some outside influence from a new love interest or whatever that might be. Um, we also don't know the order of death here. We're a, mom, mom or dad, whoever sent the email, may be assuming, oh, I'm going to pass away first because I'm older. Well, it doesn't always happen that way. What if the child dies first? Then there is no survivor on these assets and they'll become part of a probate estate, and they will pass to the surviving owner's heirs under inheritance law, unless the, the survivor has a will that says, well, if my child dies before I do, I leave these to my siblings or charities or whoever, Ole Miss, you know. So um, that, that's another unknown we don't know. So... I would, I would say joint ownership by itself is never sufficient because of the, the way that the survivorship may change. Who, who knows who's going to die first? You have to plan for the contingency that I, as a parent, will outlive my child. And so I won't have a beneficiary at that point. And I need to do planning to say, if that happens, here's what will happen with those assets. Uh, Professor Gershon on joint asset, farmland and oil royalty. Let's say that there's some capital gain that they that they bought those things at a very low price and now they've appreciated. So there's capital gains built up in that. Will those gains get uh, wiped out by the inheritance if it's jointly owned? Well, it depends because the, the uh, you know, we're talking about um, where how the step up in basis works. And, um, you know, it will, a part of it, the, the capital gains will be wiped out, you know, on, on the, the half that, uh, did not theoretically already belong to the survivor. Um, so there will be a step up in basis in half. Um, and also then I was also thinking about the estate tax side of it. It also depends on who contributed the, the, uh, consideration to buy the property. So, again, we need you can't really make a blanket uh, statement about any of this. The one thing I would say to the person who emailed is I, I find it hard to believe that all you own is the farmland and the royalty rights because you probably uh, have some personal belongings and things like that, maybe some heirlooms. And so you want to think about what you're going to do with those as well um, and who gets those. So always good to talk to somebody uh, about that uh, kind of stuff. Um because that could be the most important part of your estate to some extent. And the uh, tax issue about step up in basis could be handled by not having it in joint ownership, but having it passed to a trust for the child or to the child at death 
some other way that gets a full step up in basis, which wipes out capital gain. And there's some wonky tax talk that we won't follow up much more on. But uh, it really would be a tax benefit to the child at that point. Absolutely. Why all that potential gain, if, if they paid a dollar for the property and it was worth a million dollars, uh, you know, if you sell that property for a million dollars, you're, you're going to pay tax on the difference between what you paid for it and what, it, what it was worth when you sold it. But when you die and leave it to somebody, all that gain is wiped out. So it's a really amazing tax benefit. We have a, another email, you know, uh, Gosh, bless their heart. I will forward this email to our expert so that he could give maybe a a better answer. But this is one where there's a son and a daughter. Dad died. Uh, Mom has made a number of uh, wills and trusts and IRAs and things. But now son is trying to talk mom into changing everything and it's uh, it, it wouldn't honor a lot of the promises that were made to daughter who was taking care of mom you know is there anything daughter can do to keep son from having mom change all of her information well i think that in, in a past show we talked about undue influence i think in in planning transactions there's nothing a child can do to keep their sibling from trying to influence or talk to the parent about put me in the will better, make me the power of attorney, you know, deed me some property because I don't have a place to live and my siblings do. So, you know, no, there's not anything you may be able to do to prevent the com- communications or the efforts. But if someone like a sibling is influencing mom um, to do a will that she would not have done otherwise, but he's maybe threatening, well, I'm not going to be nice to you anymore. I'm not going to take care of your, you know, this is only fair, mom, you know it. Some pressure or coercion, that will may be invalid based on undue influence or lack of capacity if she doesn't understand what making a will is now. But even if she does have capacity to understand what a will is, if she does it, does a will or a deed or a power of attorney based on influence from um, the person who's going to benefit from that influence, that could be challenged later and maybe invalidated. So I don't know what the um, upshot of that would be in this situation, but it's an unfortunate, uh, you know, in a sad state of affairs when children are competitive for benefits from parents and you know, want to assert their rights in some cases, it sort of puts a rift in the relationships. We have just gotten so much information out, but let's keep going. Uh, Rick, what about uh, retirement plans? Give us some, the scoop on the special rules that apply to spouses and surviving spouses for IRAs and uh, such. Sure. Uh, We're seeing a lot, uh, a lot of Estates now where a significant portion, if not the majority of their financial assets are in retirement plans like IRAs and 401ks. So it is essential to plan with those benefits because they have special rules, special tax rules applied to them that are different from other assets. 
So some of the spousal things, special rules that apply to spouses or surviving spouses uh, include uh, if I have an IRA and I'm contributing to an IRA and my spouse is not working, let's say a spouse, and, and in our situation, uh, my spouse worked at home for many years at a part-time job uh, because of a disabled child to take care of at home. For whatever reason, if I have a non-working spouse who doesn't have earned income, she could contribute to her own IRA, then I can we can establish an IRA for that non-working spouse. If our gross income is below around $136,000, I believe it is this year, if our income is below $136,000, we can contribute up to $6,000 to an IRA for my non-working spouse, which usually would not be allowed. But in the case of a spouse not working, yes, we could create a spousal retirement plan and contribute 6000 to that. Or if they're um, older, I think it's over 50, it could create, you could establish, put 7000 a year in it. So uh, another one is that a surviving spouse who is the primary beneficiary of a an IRA or a 401k or a 403b plan for teachers, some of those retirement plans, a surviving spouse as beneficiary has an option that nobody else has. Children don't have it. Nephews, grandchildren don't have it. The surviving spouse, when I die and I have an IRA and a 401k, if my wife is the beneficiary, and it would work from wife to husband as well, if my wife is the beneficiary, she can elect to take a tax-free rollover of the of my IRA into a new account for herself and have it done by a spousal rollover. That effectively creates a new IRA for her as though she had put the money into it during her own savings. The big, the, the effect of that is if a child inherits my IRA, they have to start taking out annual distributions from that inherited IRA the year after that they get it. They have to start taking money out of it now, even if they're younger than 73, which is now when you have to start taking out of an IRA. If they're in their 50s, they would have to start taking annual distributions out. If my spouse is the beneficiary and she creates that rollover account for herself, she can wait until 73 to start taking distributions out, just like it was her own IRA. That can allow the money to invest and grow for a longer period and support her with more resources in her older age. So that is an important benefit that spouses uh, need to know. You know, we've counseled spouses when they call and say, well, my husband or my wife passed away and they had this retirement plan. What do I do? Said, well, let's talk. Usually the spousal rollover is going to be what they will benefit more from. Um Rick, we have two, we got two minutes, three minutes left. What would you say if some, what do you, hit us with the highlights on uh, married people and what they should do to plan to have their wills uh, carried out after they pass away? I think the uh, same thing that I would 
tell anyone is consult with an attorney who is familiar with these laws and rules. Um, estate planning lawyers should, and I know lots of great ones, um, should be familiar with these IRA rules, IRS rules about retirement plans. They should understand now that after the last two years, we have spousal revo- uh, a law that revokes a divorce spouse rights at death. Um, the, the, some of the Medicaid rules where spouses, uh, you know, a spouse of a Medicaid applicant, the Medicaid applicant going to nursing home can't have but $4,000, but the spouse at home, if they're married, can have up to $148,600 of countable money and uh, allow that uh, other spouse to be on Medicaid. So that is a shock or a surprise, pleasant surprise to a lot of married people who have a spouse going into nursing home care. There's there's so many things that affect planning decisions, the tax issues, the public benefits issues like Medicaid possibly, or Social Security benefits, that it takes someone who's, who's educated themselves, who knows and, and can look those things up and give you complete advice because doing something on one side may undo something on another side of your plan. You just want to make sure you know the effects of each thing that you're doing and why you did it. And now that it's going to help you accomplish that, the goals that you intended to do. So getting competent advice is the most important thing. You don't have to understand all the, all the rules and understand it yourself. This estate planning, I think Professor Gershon would tell his class is not a DIY project. <laughs> it's not a do it yourself thing. And I have a, coffee mug on the conference shelf in my conference room. It says, please do not confuse your Google search with my law degree. And people that have Googled up what they think they need to do, I say, well, look over there at the coffee mug. Now let's talk about what the rules are in Mississippi because they're totally different than what you just looked up. So don't try to Google your own stuff. Get competent advice from attorney that understand these things. Uh, and, and that's my best advice. Well, and we appreciate the advice that you have given to our listeners. We want to make sure that our listeners know that you have some frequently asked questions section and blogs and forms on your website, elderlawms.com. Thank you so much, Rick Courtney, for being on our show today. We really appreciate you being part and partnering with MPB for this show. Thank you. Had a great time. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms. Our team consists of board engineer and podcast producer Abram Nanny. And I think just about everybody at MPB has been answering our phones today. We are such good team players. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.